0: Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you all. I want to first start by thanking our brother, for reading all of Haggai. I know that was a little bit longer than typical scripture reading. But I want to do that for two reasons. When I was here on Wednesday, I realized there's a lot of you who probably don't know me. I assume the majority probably do. But I've been gone for so long um, and we have lots of visitors because of the Thanksgiving holiday that I wanted to at least have a brief time to introduce myself and and why I'm here. Um, My name is David Neal Bunting. I am the son of David Teresa Bunting. David's one of the regular preachers here. And we moved here back in 04. Next summer will be 20 years um, uh, since my parents and family moved to the Murfreesboro area. And this congregation supports me in my preaching work in South Dakota, uh, Rapid City, South Dakota in particular. And and so when we were going to be here for Thanksgiving, the elders asked if I was willing to present uh, a lesson as maybe as well as a very kind of brief summary of the work up there. And so to give myself a few extra minutes, I asked the reader to do the whole of Haggai, because we'll talk about that when we get to the lesson itself. Um, uh, South Dakota is far from everything. You don't get there by accident. so we're in the western edge. The little red dot is approximately where Rapid City is. Uh, most of you, the only reason you would know Rapid City area is because we're close to Mount Rushmore. It's about 30 minutes away from us, or so southwest of us. Um, uh, if you're a National Parks fan, we're not far from the Badlands or Wind Cave. And uh, also, South Dakota is a relatively uh, uh, rural state. I got to go to a friend's wedding this summer, doing another reporting trip, and talking to her husband right after the wedding, he was asking where we were, and I said we were in Rapid City, South Dakota, and he paused and he said, South Dakota? I don't think I've ever met anyone from South Dakota. (laughs) It's because there's less than a million of us in the whole state. So, um, uh, but Rapid City itself is about 75,000 people who live there, another 40 who live in about 30-minute radius around the city, about 120, 110,000 people. Um, uh, our next big city is Sioux Falls, about 200,000 people on the east side of the state. We're on the edge of the Black Hills. It's a pretty, it's a pretty area, um, mm-hmm. and we work with the Southside Congregation. Um, mostly pictured here. Uh, Because of Mount Rushmore and the Badlands and several other things, we get a lot lot of tourists. We actually have quite a few visitors um, in this picture. We have about 45 members. Uh, About 20 of those are kids 14 and under. And, uh, and so, uh, he, Trevor Troche is a fellow evangelist I work with here. Uh, he's the one actually taking the picture, so he's not pictured here. Uh, but his wife, uh, Justine, is right right here on the right side. Um, if you can see Justine. They have four kids, three girls and a boy. And in fact, his parents were there this Sunday um, behind them. And then his brother Channing and his wife were also there helping them move into a house they had just bought. Um, uh, Also pictured here, we recently lost a brother. Uh, He had had a battle with cancer for about a year. Uh, Brother Stan passed away probably about a month ago now. Um, And so the congregation has been wrestling with that. Uh, But even though Trevor and I share the preaching, uh, pretty much 50-50 and also teach a lot of the Wednesday and Sunday classes, the big reason I moved there was to help with evangelism and to try to help make context, help the brethren get better at making context, uh, have studies with those contacts, as uh, as well as trying to help equip them to do the same. Uh, Been very encouraged with that. We've been there almost two years. It'll be two years in January. We haven't had any conversions yet. Uh, There's several people I've been studying with uh, close to six, seven months. Uh, the past two months, um, if I met with everyone, if no one canceled with me, uh, that I could theoretically meet with on a weekly basis, I'd meet with eight different non Christians. Um, uh, that's not including the, t- the time I spent with any of the Christians or the children of Christians of the congregation. And so we're very thankful for the opportunity to do that, and we're very thankful for you and the sacrifices you all have made so that we can be there and supporting us. Um, uh, the generosity you showed to me, as well as I know quite a few other evangelists here and in other places, so thank you. And thank you for the impact you've had on me and my walk with God. I don't know how other preachers feel. I guess I'll point this out real quick. Um, down here is downtown Rapid City, um, and just so you know where that picture is. Um, uh, it's up on one of the hills uh, that you can hike in town um, and get a pretty good view of the, of the valley. Um, I don't know how other preachers feel about this, but for me, it's a little daunting, even to go to a congregation I know and preach one lesson. And the reason that is, is when you're the regular preacher or regular teacher at a place, you have multiple opportunities to positively and dramatically impact someone for God's kingdom, to help them know God, to help them draw closer to God, to help them overcome whatever it is in their life that they're wrestling with spiritually. But when you come to do a single lesson, you get one chance. Get one shot. And I don't know what it is in your life that is hard. I don't know what temptation Satan is trying to sink into you and get a grip of your life that you're resisting. I don't know what losses you have recently gone through. I don't know what stresses. We talked about in James' class today how life is full of stresses. God uses those stresses to grow us, but I don't know what your stresses are. And so I walk into a situation where I have no insider information about what is going on with you. And I said, I want you to get up, and I want you to help these people spiritually. It's a daunting task. And so I decided to overview Haggai for two reasons. One is, at the very least, at the end of this lesson, there'll be a book of the Bible you hopefully know a little bit better, and that's a positive thing. But the big reason I wanted to overview Haggai was Haggai is one of the books, it's really probably true of all books in the Bible, But it's a book that can change your life if you let it. It's a book that can get overlooked, partially because it's in the prophets and we often have less experience with the prophets. They feel harder to kind of wrap our heads around. And so we might spend more times in the gospels and more times in the narratives of the Old Testament. But despite its short length, it has a message for us that will change how you think about God will change how you think about yourself and God's kingdom, change how you see the world around you, if you let it. So that's our aim, that's our lofty goal this morning. But for the first goal, um, those who've had, uh, I did a preaching internship here years ago, and so some of you know have seen me do some lessons like this. It's a style of outline that I like to do. Some people don't like it. I'm sorry for those people who don't. to your standard bullet point outline, I have a hard time remembering those. This is more pictographic, and I have an easier time remembering this, and so I like doing them this way. Um, uh, so these numbers represent your chapter verse divisions, and the lines representing the, set, the different sections of Haggai in this case, and then we're gonna fill in the boxes that tell us about those sections. And so I'm a nerd. For those who don't know me, I'm a nerd. I have a master's degree in mathematics from MTSU. And and one of my nerdy things I like about Haggai is that as uh, uh, Brian was talking about James this morning, James is really hard to outline. Haggai makes it easy for us. And that's because Haggai timestamps everything in his book. He gives you the day and the month in which the message or event is occurring. And one of the reasons I'm nerding out about that is because I want to know what Haggai's thoughts were. How did he think about his message? How was he trying to structure it so he could convey what he wanted to convey? Um, And when I come to a text, I think it should always be one of the goals when we're studying a book to try to figure out, okay, when the writer sat down to write this, how are they thinking about their message and trying to organize it so that we can hear the, the big picture he's trying to get across? Um, Haggai makes it easy by saying, this happened on this day and this month. In fact, most of, uh, this whole book happens within about um, three months of each other. So notice the first date is the first day of the sixth month. Of course, it's the Jewish calendar, not our standard calendars. Um, we won't take the time to talk about how you, how you compare those. But first day of the sixth month, the Jewish calendar, and the last message is on the ninth month. So about three to four months is the whole book of Haggai. It's not that it's probably all that he said, but it's all we're told in the book. And uh, it's all about, if you remember the reading, the building of the temple. So if you remember the captivity period, Jerusalem conquered 605 to 587, three different uh, captivities where Peter carried off. And then in in 536, Cyrus, the Persian, conquers Babylon, tells the people they can go home to Jerusalem. So around that time, 536 535 BC, Jerusalem, uh, people begin to go back to Jerusalem um, and start rebuilding the temple. So right around 534 um, BC. I did check this earlier. I'm sorry that that's there. um, And after they build the foundation of the temple, they stop. And they stopped working on the temple for 14 years, maybe 15 years if it's 535 when they finished that part. Because the second year of Darius or Darius, depending on how you say his name, is 520 BC. And had guys like show up and saying, Why aren't you guys rebuilding the temple? And it is finished in 516 B.C., so it took about four years to finish the temple. Um, But all of is happening in that year, 520, uh, 520 B.C. And as he says in the first message, it primarily is a rebuke of a not building temple and a charge to rebuild it. And each of these messages have a pairing of the attitude or the response of the people and how God responds or thinks about that. And so what's been going on for 14 years is that people have been saying, now is not the time to build. Have you ever procrastinated something and then a decade later realize you still haven't gotten around to it? That's what's been going on for 14 years. And God says, because you've been saying now is not the time to build, I called a drought. I called a drought on your crops. I called a drought on your livestock. Why did you think that you're putting your money in purses and it seemed like it just disappeared out of nowhere? You just couldn't keep anything going. I brought these crises to make you realize, to try to wake you up, that you weren't doing my will. We made the point in the James class that often God will bring um, crises or stresses to grow us, but there are times when God brings crises to indeed try to wake us up out of our stupor, out of our spiritual slumber, and say, you're not doing my will, you need to be doing it. And that's what has happened in, uh, in Haggai. So the first message is, you're saying it's not time to build, God's saying it is time to build, go to the mountains, gather wood, gather. my my temple, um, because I called a drought to try to wake you up. And to the credit of the people. I personally think Haggai is actually a very happy book, because in verse 12, you get the response, and they genuinely obey. One of the ways you see that um, is, notice the message is on the first day of the month, On the 24th day of the month, they start rebuilding it. I know there's several of you who work in engineering um, and in construction. Um, Anyone who works in that field knows how long it takes to plan, organize, accumulate materials, accumulate manpower to get a project just started. They do it in three weeks. They spend 14 years doing nothing, and in three weeks, they compile their resources, get the plan, and start executing on the plan. There's genuine obedience. And God's response is, even though I have called these droughts and called these crises upon you, because you are genuinely obeying me, I am with you. Here's one of the beauties of this picture. When God calls us to repentance, he doesn't say, go fix yourself. And when you've perfected yourself, come and present yourself to me and I'll see if it's good enough. No, God calls us to repentance, and if we will repent and seek to genuinely obey him, that's when God says, I am with you. He doesn't hold you off at arm's length and say, when you're good enough, you can come be with me. No, God wants you to be with him. He wants to work with the people. He says, now I am with you. In chapter 2, and there has been a couple months uh, since the initial message and response, They're making progress on the temple, and God has another message of encouragement. And here's here's why. Some of the older people, who actually were probably children, uh, presumably, remember Solomon's temple. And they're watching the new temple go up, and they realize it's not as grand. It's not as beautiful. It's not as majestic as Solomon's temple was. They remember what it was, and it's a reminder of what was lost. Because of their sin. And so there's a sense of despair by the older generation. And God's response is saying, don't despair. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. I will bring peace in this temple. I will fill this temple with glory. Don't despair, I see your work and it matters. I know it seems little to you, the way Zachariah will say, do not despise the day of small things. (laughs) I see your work, I will glorify this temple. There's a great irony though in that statement because if you remember the building of the tabernacle in Exodus, and you remember the building of the temple in Solomon's day, when those two are finished and they both represent the same thing, the dwelling of God with his people. God actually fills it and represents his glory by this cloud, this bright cloud that fills the tabernacle and then fills the temple when it's finished. That doesn't occur when they finish this temple. God says in 520, he's going to fill this temple with glory, but in 516, he doesn't fill it the way he did with the tabernacle and temple. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. But he says, I will glorify this temple. The third message is probably the weirdest one, in my opinion, because it's this question. Haggai's told to ask the priest about holiness, and it boils down to to simply this. He says, okay, go ask the priest. If you have a holy object and you go touch an ordinary object, does the ordinary object become holy? And the answer is no. Okay, if you have an unclean or unholy object and you touch an ordinary object, does the ordinary object become unclean? The answer is yes. And God's statement following that is, so are this people and so is the work of their hands. Here's why that's so strange. What are the people building? God's temple God's holy temple, and he just said the people are unclean and the work of the, uh, the works of their hands are unclean. How in the world can the temple be holy? And what makes it all the more strange is God does not resolve that issue in Haggai. He doesn't say, but here's what's going to happen or here's how this resolves. He leaves it there and jumps to, remember when I brought those droughts? Remember when I told you that I was bringing these struggles into your life? And he mentions the day, he says, from this day, the ninth day of the 24th month, now I will bless you. And like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait. What about that whole holiness conversation? What's going on with that? We'll have to wait for a second to answer that question because he doesn't answer in Haggai. But he does say, I will bless you. So here's one of the points Haggai's making. What's the day they started rebuilding the temple? The 24th day of the 6th month it has been exactly 3 months. So, so even though they start genuine obedience, God makes them wait 3 more months before he begins to abate the crisis he's brought. So here's a lesson for us. That when God is using a crisis to try to wake us up, if we do finally wake up and start responding to him properly, he might not immediately take away that crisis. He might make us endure it for a bit longer. And he has the prerogative to do so. And probably fall into the uh, idea that we talked about this morning, James, that he's allowing the stress to grow us. And then the very last message, and it's less like a message and just more like a statement, is where he talks to Zerubbabel and he says, I will exalt you. I have chosen you, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a descendant of King David. He is the governor of the returned people at present. And he is an, he is an ancestor of Jesus. And so he's in the lineage of Jesus. And he represents the people in, in more, more ways than one. He says, I have chosen you, and I will make you like my signet ring.'" And if you don't know what that is, governors, kings, rulers, when they had a message or a proclamation or a letter sent, they had usually a special ring that they would uh, stamp into this melted wax to place their insignia on it to emphasize this is authentic, this is from me, this is authorized by whatever governing body uh, is making this uh, statement or letter. says, I'm going to make you a signet ring. And while that's again a little confusing, we'll talk about that in just a second. It is a message of exaltation. It's a message of hope. I I really am very happy for Haggai, because Haggai gets to be one one of the rare prophets who gets to prophesy and the people respond to him. The people actually do what he says. If you read the prophets um, or if you read about them in 2 Kings or in the 2 Chronicles, most of them just get ignored at best and sometimes stoned uh, or killed at worst. Haggai actually gets listened to. And that message is relevant for us today. If I had to summarize this, One of the points you can draw out of Haggai is a point that if you pay attention, you'll see throughout scripture. But in chapter one, whose responsibility, whose work is being emphasized? Well, it's the people. They have a responsibility to build the temple. They've been ignoring that. They've been procrastinating that and been focusing on other things. But in chapter two, whose work is being emphasized? This is so important. The state or the emotions of the people are being discussed. But the work being discussed is God's. God says, I will glorify. God says, I will bless. God says, I will make you a signet ring. Chapter 2 is less about the people as more about what God will do. And here's why this is so significant. We live in a religious climate Uh, particularly for any people who claim to be Bible believers, uh, Christian denominations, that for a long time has emphasized the grace of God and love of God to the exclusion of obedience and personal responsibility. And because of that, Many people um, have, that I've grown up around, gotten to be with, um, have justly made the point that no, God does expect obedience. How you act does influence your relationship with God. And whether you have one or whether you don't. But in that emphasis, it's easy to miss that God says, but I also have a role to play as well. <laughs> that there is work that God is going to do. Again, God doesn't say, go fix yourself and then can present your perfection to me. He says, turn to me, and I will bless you. I will be with you. I will glorify. There is a synergy between the work that a disciple has and that God does in your life. He doesn't tell you to go do it by yourself. He says, trust me and let me work through. And so there's a single theme verse in Haggai. I think it's his call to consider your ways and rebuild. So what does this have to do with us today? What what message does this have for us? We're going to look at each of those sermons, and and we'll spend the most time on the first one. I think that's the biggest application to be made, and we'll spend a briefer time on the last three. But... In what way does this message of Haggai relate to us? Why don't you go to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2, we're picking up in verse 21. In the context of Ephesians, uh, Paul's audience is primarily Gentiles. Um, if you glance at chapter 211, he's talking, he says, you uncircumcision, co- who are called that by the circumcision. So Jews are circumcised, non-Jews, Gentiles are uncircumcised. And um, he says, you were formally this. Um, you were outside of the promise, the, the covenants of promise. You were separated from Christ. Um, but if you look in verse 20, uh, or verse 19, he says, so now you're no longer strangers. Now you're fellow citizens. You're of God's household. In chapter three, six, a part of the great mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles will be full, complete fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers of this gospel of Christ, this new thing that God is making. And so with that in mind, pick up in verse, we'll pick up in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together as growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Talking to these Gentiles and Jews who are happy to be honest. But his focus is with the Gentiles being brought in and being made. If you glanced at a little bit earlier uh, up in verse um, 15. He says he's made them into two, into one new man. And he says, you are being built together for something. What is that something? You're being built into a holy temple. Into a dwelling of God and Spirit. Paul uses the same language in 1 Corinthians 3. He uses it in 2 Corinthians 6. Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 2, that the people of God are the temple of God. That the temple of God is no longer going to be represented by tent curtains in the tabernacle. No longer represented by stones and buildings in the temple in Jerusalem. It's going to be represented by living stones, the language that Peter uses in 1 Peter, of people. Transition from a physical place and a physical building to all of God's people across the world. God dwells in the world through his people now. Hold that thought and jump to chapter 4. In chapter 4, picking up in verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 11 says God gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave elders, he gave evangelists for what purpose? To equip saints. Is that where the story is? It is, it is, it is your a preacher's job for you to show up on Sunday and he gives you a lesson, he helps you be equipped, and then you, you leave, and that's the end of the story. No. Notice the text here says, is to equip saints for the work of service to build up the body. In chapter one, uh, he makes it very clear that the, the body imagery represents the people of God, the church, is, it, is Ephesians chapter one. Or as he says chapter two, the temple. The role that the apostles have, the role that the prophets have, the role that your elders have, the role that your preachers have, is to equip you to build the temple. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what role do you play in that? And there are a variety of roles. One of the clearest ones in scripture is there is a distinction between male roles and female roles and the way they build up the temple. But it's a question that we should be able to answer. That we should be able to point to scripture and say this is what scripture calls some of God's people to do. This is ways he calls males to build the temple and females to build the temple. And this is how I fit into that picture. And if you don't know how to answer that question, I highly encourage you to talk to your elders. You have a really good group of them. And talk to your evangelists. I think they're pretty good. And talk to the mature Christians in your life and say, I need to figure out where I fit in this picture. I need to figure out what role I play in building up the temple. Because that's what the picture, that's the pattern here, that we're being equipped to build God's people, God's temple. My wife and I recently got to have the the blessing of having a young lady over um, to our home. Uh, She was doing a traveling work program, and she was just in Rapid City for about three months. And so it was at the end of that uh, that we finally got to have her over. And we had nothing to do with this, but we got to be blessed by hearing um, her account of the growth she's experienced. and she was describing how, uh, growing up, uh, she grew up in a family of Christians, and she's very thankful for that. And it was a great blessing to her. Uh, but she realized, when she when she got picked up, by choice, she chose to do this, but plucked out of, of that place, dropped the place, she didn't know anyone in a culture she wasn't super familiar with, um, she, she realized several things about herself. She realized that, and she didn't use this language, but she realized, She hadn't really been focusing on building the temple of God. Instead, she was really primarily focused on building her relations with her family. She loved her family. She basically spent all of her free time with her family. And they're Christians. It's not a bad thing. But she realized she wasn't focused on their spiritual development. She wasn't focused on her own spiritual development. And she just kept putting that off. Like the Jews. And saying, now is not the time to build. And she's being plucked out of that and being placed um, in a pla- uh, in somewhere where she didn't know anyone. And she's at work, and she had a very pleasant experience at work. All her coworkers were talking about how she, they wanted her to go. But they were asking her questions about her faith, about her beliefs, and she's realizing, I, I need to be able to answer those things. And I don't know how. And it forced her to take a much more serious view of her prayer life, a much more serious view of her study life, um, a much more serious view of this idea of, what's my role in building the temple? I know I joked earlier about when's the last time you looked at something and said, and, and uh, say, I'll do that tomorrow and procrastinate for 10 years, but how many times in our faith have we done that? How many times has there been something that we know we need to work on, some, some ability to develop as a Christian to, to build up the body and we're saying, well, just, just not today. And we turn around, a decade has gone by. I've met 14-year-old infants. And it's because they keep saying, but not today. It's the same struggle. Haggai's message wasn't just for his people. Haggai's message applies to each and every one of us today because we can fall into the same trap. This crisis has to be dealt with now. i got to put that other spiritual thing off. And I don't know what houses Satan is trying to get you to build instead of God, but I promise you he's trying to get you to build something. It could be your careers, it could be your academics, it could be your hobbies. I don't know what things he's trying to put into your life. David Creech, um, this is years ago, you probably remember saying this, once did a lesson and he used the phrase weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> it's a thing, especially in Western culture, Um, uh, in Western culture because we have so much free time it's so easy to to allow ourselves to be distracted and say well yeah I'm gonna have time to do that tomorrow or next week or whatever so I don't know what it is in your life but I'm asking whose house are you building and are the ways you could be building God's house God's temple more effectively more efficiently and if you're not sure where to start talk to your elders Talk to your preachers. Because their job to help you figure it out. The other messages also relay. I won't spend as much time on those. Um, I'll be brief about those. Because the main lesson, I think, is this first one for us. But the other lesson, where he says, do not despair. I just want to glance at a, a couple uh, passages. Again, looking back. Um, glance real quick in uh, chapter 2, looking in verse... Fourteen. Notice how it says, he himself, from Jesus, is our peace. I highlight that because that's a text, that's a phrase that God uses of the temple they're building in Haggai's day. I will bring peace here. But the one I want you to focus on is actually in chapter 3. Notice verse 13 of chapter 3. Paul talking to them says, I ask you not to lose heart. I ask you not to be despairing. I ask you not to give up. I ask you not to be weighed down about my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Do You see the parallel between Haggai's second message? Don't despair. I will glorify this house. And Paul is praying for them. And there's three big things he's praying for. One in verse 16, that they'll be strengthened with power in the inner man. That they will, in 17, 18, 19, that they will come to understand the love of God, which is not understandable. That they will come to grow to comprehend, which is really something beyond comprehension, the love of God. And he ends in verse 9 saying, to be filled with the fullness of God. Now remember, who or what is the temple today? It's the people of God. So when Haggai says, I will glorify this house, and yet he doesn't bring down the the cloud, I think there's two ways in which the glory of this rebuilt temple is greater. God doesn't represent his presence in a cloud. He sends his own son who goes and teaches in that temple and overturns tables in that temple. It's in that temple that the veil is ripped from top to bottom, ending the separation between man and God because of sin. That temple is where that happens. But then that temple is also the transition stone to a grander version of the temple made up of the people of God in whom the fullness of God fills, verse 19. God says, I will fill you with glory. I will make you do things you could not imagine. In fact, that's what he says in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. We often quote that. I don't think it's a misuse of the text to talk about how God can help us through whatever the stress or trial is. And our life. I think that's a perfectly fine usage of the passage. But Paul's main point here isn't about the outward things. He's saying God can do things with you. In his kingdom and building his temple that you could not imagine how many people say i'm too far gone to turn back to god there's no way god could use me paul's saying what well, paul's saying here is you are wrong god is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you ask or think He's able to fill you with his fullness in ways you couldn't imagine. He's able to help you understand what is not understandable. He's able to help you be strengthened in the inner man. If you will trust him. Will we believe what God says when he says, I can do things with you that you couldn't imagine? If you will trust me. If you will let me. If you will not give into despair and give up. Let me work through you. The second sermon, he says, can you transfer holiness? No. Can you transfer uncleanness? Yes. You are unclean. The works of your hands are unclean. What's the resolution? Jump over to chapter 4. Look in verse 22. Ephesians 4, and this is not to say that Haggai somehow is prophesying the book of Ephesians is going to be written, uh, or Ephesians was written to clarify Haggai. Um, these ideas are discussed in other places in the New Testament. Ephesians is just a convenient, condensed place to see them all. Uh, Ephesians 4, picking up in 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in the accordance of the lusts of the deceit, the uncleanness, the unholiness. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Again, you actually see the synergy here. Notice how he says in 24, who is supposed to put on the new self? His audience. There's a personal responsibility here. You put on the new self. But who made that new self? Who created that new self? Did I make it? Did you make it? No. God created it in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What's the resolution to Haggai's question? Is that God will sanctify. He will hallow. We do not have the ability to transmit holiness. God does. That's represented in the image of Jesus touching the leper. Leprosy is unclean. It transfers uncleanness. Jesus touches the leper and transfers holiness. No. He cleanses the leprosy. This is the picture. This is the resolution to Haggai's question that he doesn't answer in the book of Haggai. That in the sacrifice and work of Jesus, he will make you holy. He will make you righteous. If we let God, let him. What, what does it look like? Just one way I'll highlight from the text. He talks about in 23 being renewed in your thinking. Changing the way you think. And the rest of chapter four is really a a description of what that looks like in a variety of issues. Um, I'll just say it this way. Sometimes we handle sin and temptation by by saying we're just going to white knuckle grip ourselves through this. I'm not gonna give in no matter what. And that often works for a while. And while it is not sinful to be tempted, be very clear on that, temptation is not sin itself. I would suggest to you that that this text says, Christian, you should want something more. You should want something more than just have to whiten up yourself out of temptation. You should seek to be changing the way you think, allowing God to hallow your thoughts, changing your desires so that eventually temptations stop being temptations because you don't want those things anymore. You're allowing God to change the way you look at the world, change the way you look at your environment, so that what used to be really challenging and hard to resist now becomes a little bit easier because it becomes less and less attractive. Will we let God change our thoughts? Will we look in His Word and when God says, "You know what? Sexual relations inside marriage is wonderful. It is desirable. And if it's outside of that, it is not." It is detrimental, it is destructive, and you shouldn't want it. It's poison. If I believe God about that, it will change the way I think about those temptations. i we be renewing my mind. And there's so many things. Again, read the rest of chapter 4 to see various ways. He says, don't think about this this way, think about it this way. In the last sermon, when he says the chosen signet ring. Again, talk about Zerubbabel. Clearly, he's a foreshadow of Jesus, the Messiah. He's an ancestor of Jesus. Um, look at chapter 4, verse 30. 430. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What's sealed there is not a word that means stuck in a box or stuck in some kind of container. It is the same idea as a signet ring. You were marked by the Spirit. And it has to be the way it works. If you're going to be a member, if you're going to be a living stone in the temple of God, you have to be sanctified. You have to be marked to be appropriately placed in that temple. And so the question I have for us with this is, are we living for ourselves or are we living for the one who marked us? He makes the point that you can grieve the spirit. What does it look like? One well, thirty-one. It looks like holding on to bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. In contrast, not grieving the spirit it looks like being kind to one another, tender heart, forgiving each other. God has marked you. You belong to Him. If you are in Christ, you have a place. We sing a song. I'm really impressed with Brother Bain's selection. He chose songs that are very uh, related to Haggai. It's not an easy thing to do. Because he says, you are chosen. You have been marked by the creator of the universe as his. If you are in Christ, you have a belonging with him. Are we living that way? I realize today's lesson has been a little light on specific applications, partially because I, can, I don't know the specifics for you personally, at least most of you. And so you're going to have to think about that yourself or talk to your elders again or talk to your preachers and say, this is going on, I need help working through this and thinking through this. But God's invitation to be a part of his temple is open to anyone willing to submit to him. Anyone who's willing to make Jesus, confess Jesus as the Lord of their life. And as Lord, there's a call to repent. There's a call to change, to renew your mind, to let God sanctify you. And if you're willing to do that, then God's willing to start that process, to lay that foundation by burying the old man and raising the new one in baptism. If you will let it. And this congregation would be more than happy to help you start that journey. And then to be supports and tools in God's hands to grow you in that journey. And so if you are ready to make that commitment, or if you need help, you need some kind of, you want public prayers, this group wants to be there for you. If you will let them. God wants to use them. If you will let him. If you have any spiritual need, let us know as we stand and as we sing.